You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Hey, welcome back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, oh, he's afraid the deflector shield will be quite operational when your friends arrive. It's Mr. Jeff McLarge Huge. It's a trap. <laughs> How's it going, man? I'm well. How are you? That's a I, setup. <laughs> I, yes, it is a setup. Uh, as you know, I... I am now battling a cold. The first cold I've had in three years. Yeah. And in the, here as we come to the, you know, the end of year three, into the winter three of, of uh, COVID-19, mm-hmm. every single ache, pain, sniffles, anything that isn't at all normal is like, oh, that's it. I've got it. I've been, there I've gone is. this far. I've yeah. gone three years and I've been able to outrun it. Right. And, you know, is it now, is this the point where it finally catches up with me and took a COVID test this morning and it was negative, but I, I feel kind of under the weather, as they say. Right. Yeah. As we discussed, I got mine over the summer. Good luck. Keep us posted on that. And like we were saying before the show, you know, in the pre-show stuff, I mean, it's kind of the lockdowns haven't been in effect in a very long time. And we've kind of been, quote unquote, back to normal, you know, for over a year now, even though, you know, I still see a lot of masks everywhere. That's that's right. fine. Yes, a lot of us have not really had a cold in three years. And because of that, everything feels like death. Everything feels the worst. Right. Though you have absolutely no argument for me there. And I think I'm used to being worried about this stuff now. Yeah. That when I was laying in bed last night feeling crappy, sort of post-nasal drip and my sinuses all sort of raw and sore. All I could, I kept waking up and thinking like, oh, this is it. Yep. This is it. This is how they find me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Wrapped in my blankets, wearing my R2-D2 underwear. Dead. <laughs> Dead in my bed from COVID-19. <laughs> I have had a blocked sinus. Not the same one. It's been moving around. But I have had a blocked sinus for, I don't know, over a month now. And it's just, it doesn't want to move. It's just, it's just like a block so probably should go see a doctor about that, but I'm busy. You know. <laughs> yeah, I'm coming up on the time of year when I have to go see all my all my favorite doctors, the doctors who like look at me with a facial expression that suggests either they're wondering why I'm still alive or trying to figure out the best way to tell me that I'm not going to be alive for long or some something else like that. It's it's almost time to go see my cardiologists, and I go oh. in every year, and I'm they're like, "Yep, just keep doing what you're doing," and then I walk out of there, and for 11 months, I'm like. I am invincible. I cannot be killed. And then for one month, I'm like, this is it. This is it. This is it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now I'm at the age where whenever I go to the doctor, he just like rolls in a craftsman's toolbox and opens it up. And every drawer is just like rubber gloves of different yeah. <laughs> sizes and thicknesses and colors and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I'm at the point where I don't care. When I go for my physical, he's like, look, I've got bad news for you. We're going to have to check your problem. Like, I don't get whatever. <laughs> whatever you got to do. Look, That's not the bad news. Yeah. <laughs> There's way worse bad news you could be hitting me with, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, you, what, you, what, you think I haven't had a finger up my ass before? <laughs> <laughs> Doctor, I am in my 50s with a, a history of heart disease. Do not say I've got bad news. Do not lead with that. Right. Never. It's <laughs> a terrible way to start. <laughs> You're looking well for someone in your condition. Excuse me? What was that now? <laughs> I can't speed your uh, your ailments along. All I can do is give you this week's trivia question. Oh, uh, right. Yeah, time for the very popular and always well-received trivia question. Pretty short today. And matter of fact, I'm looking for which president of the United States was the shortest president of the United States. And I don't mean the guy that served for 29 days. I'm no, talking no, no, about no, no. In, in stature. 
Height-wise, yeah. Okay. Yep. Who was the shortest president? I will give you the answer in between sneezes at the end of this program. So this is going to be the week beginning, October the 24th. And since you're not feeling well, I'll let you start. Oh, I appreciate that. So we'll start on October 24th, 1901. A woman named Anne Edison Taylor is the first person on her 36th birthday to go over Niagara Falls in a barrel and not die. She makes it to the bottom. She like whacks her head real good. And surprisingly enough, she survived the fall. Whereupon I'm sure she was promptly arrested and fined. Yeah, probably. I actually remember reading up about her because, as I've established, I do like Niagara Falls quite a bit. I've been there a number of times. Whenever I'm traveling out west, we tend to plot the trip around Niagara Falls because it's something cool to go to go see, and it's usually not all that far away. Yeah, I can't imagine looking at Niagara Falls and thinking to myself, I can do it. I can do it. And here's this woman, uh, Ann Taylor, Annie Taylor, uh, who did it on her 63rd birthday. Yeah. That's still yeah. hope for me yet. <laughs> and she had, she had her cat with her on the inside. Nah, she did the cat She did the cat solo first just to test. Oh, okay. I, 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 so I, I, she put, she put the that? cat. Uh, hopefully it was a feral cat because no, no one wants to do that to their pet. Well, you're going to have yeah, a lot exactly. of explaining to do and having to buy really expensive food from then on. But uh, here you go, kitty kitty. I guess that the barrel was really neat in in that she custom built it with iron and an oak and she fitted a mattress in it and she used an air pump and some sort of bladder to yeah. make negative pressure on the inside. So it was constantly pushing out. Right. To give her a little bit of extra flex when it hit the rocks below. Because generally what happens when people up to the point where she went would go over Niagara Falls in a barrel. The barrel would hit the rocks at the bottom. The spectators would go, oh, that guy's dead. And that guy yeah. would be dead. And hers didn't do that. It stayed together. And they, rather than fish out a corpse, they had to find, they had to capture the barrel and uh, unlock yeah. it, take her out. Yeah, you have to think of another uh, another part of that thing. Not just the fall, and not just the rocks at the bottom. That is hundreds and thousands and hundreds of thousands of pounds of water, pretty constantly just, you know, coming down on you. Get me out of this freaking... I mean, how much air could there possibly have been in that thing, too, you know? Well, I mean, with negative pressure, it probably held it probably held enough air for her to stay there for a little while. I'm sure that as it bobbed off the rocks and started was floating over there where the maid of the mist hangs out, yep. they fished it out and, and immediately gave her to the park police. So the worst part about this story is that she used to tour around giving you know lectures and speeches, and she would bring the barrel with her, you know, as a curiosity... And I forgot what year it was, but somebody stole her barrel. That that's that sucks. That is yeah. the worst. That is the worst. Yeah, I bet they so, were in cahoots with her cat. So it was those, yeah, with some animal activist. Cat's like, look, <laughs> I'll, I'll give you two tuna tails and uh, whatever's left in this nine lives can if you can get that barrel out of here. <laughs> there was a feral cat on the side of the road <laughs> with a sign that says "Will work for kibble." <laughs> All right, let's move on to the 25th. Da, 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 ba, da, da, da. The worst movie <laughs> ever. So, October 25th of 1984, a movie called Give My Regards to Broad Street premieres in at the Gotham Theater in New York City. Uh, Gotham. Ooh, that's that's uh, that's foreshadowing, kids. Yes. Uh, Give My Regards to Broad Street is a movie with a question mark at the end of it. That was put out, a musical movie put out by your friend of mine, the often uh, dead member of the Beatles, Paul McCartney. This movie tanked. I remember them promoting the hell out of it on MTV, and this movie like came and went so fast, it messed up my hair. It was it was tied to like his fifth solo record, which uh, had a had a couple of singles off it. I don't remember if Pipes of Peace came out before or after this one, but that was a big deal when that video came out. Yep. I remember sitting in the cinema watching this movie, but I have... Absolutely no You went to see of, it? Yeah, I have absolutely no recollection of what the hell this movie was about. I had to go read about it at Wikipedia. And even then, my brain just basically said, yeah, we've uh, we've, we've reused those boot sectors for something else. I remember it being on HBO and attempting to watch it and just not being able to because it was just it wasn't good. And we've discussed before that. You know, the Beatles were a great band. The Beatles were the Beatles. That's It's what they are. But they weren't flawless. 
and especially post Beatles, there's a lot of bad decisions that have been made along the way. And I'm quite sure in 1984, you know, Paul smoked a bunch of weed and said, let's make a movie. And then somebody else was like, well, what's this movie going to be about? We'll cross that bridge when we get to it, won't we? And then Ringo Starr is actually in the movie. And he's like, I could be in the movie if you'd like. <laughs> and they're like, what do you work for? Um, you can make a sandwich. <laughs> right. I'm pretty sure that he and Linda McCartney got really high and ate a bunch of vegetarian sausages. <laughs> and then they watched both Head, the monkeys, oh, the which monkeys is a movie, yeah. non-determinate plot line movie. And then they watched The Song Remains the Same. Do you remember The Song Remains the Same? Led Zeppelin yeah. slash yeah. concert slash pieces and parts stuck together that don't make any sense movie. This movie right, is like yeah. The Song Remains the Same. Except it's way worse. And the song yeah. remains the same is unwatchable. So we could make a concert movie with no concert to it, couldn't we? It's a shoehorn drama kidnapping thing meant to showcase like four or five songs from his record. Maybe a couple more than that, if I remember right, mm-hmm. that are could have been cut out of the film and used as videos. And, not surprisingly, were cut out of the film <laughs> and used as videos on MTV. You know, it's another thing, too, is... You know, you have the four distinct personalities in the Beatles. Right. The funny one, you'll notice, is not a moniker anybody has. You know, if anybody could be making doing comedy, it could be Ringo. Oh, and yeah. give my yeah. And give my regards to Broad Street was kind of pitched as a kind of a comedy, but Well I don't know. It, it was sort of described it's been described both as a comedy and as a musical drama. I I, I it can't be both. I guess people who watched it were like, none of this is funny. Maybe we're supposed to have pathos. Maybe that's what the story is about. (laughs) I can't really relate to the main character because the main character is Paul F. McCartney. (laughs) Maybe that's my problem. Having a hard time connecting with the cast. I don't know. It's it's a fantastic film for a movie night. And again, if you want to stick this one and do musicals to murder yourself by this one, (laughs) the song remains the same. And as much as I love to watch it, head. Right. Get some pizzas and bring some friends over and just marvel at the mediocrity. You know what, though? I've I've never seen Help and I've never seen A Hard Day's Night. I've seen Yellow Submarine. And I think we've got a standard to go by here because Yellow Submarine's not really all that watchable either. It's not. No. It's funny that the best Beatles movie is the one they did with the goddamn Bee Gees. Anyway, anyway, I'm, I'm losing my track here. <laughs> yeah, yes. All right, October 26, what do you got? October 26, 1981, a non-shitty song is released. Queen and David Bowie's single, Under Pressure, makes a humongous splash, I think predominantly because of MTV. Uh, it was yeah, a, well, yeah, it didn't hurt. It didn't for sure, hurt, yeah. And, and that video, which was cobbled together with clips from public domain films, including Nosferatu and some other stuff, Yep. was in super heavy rotation for, it felt like a year on MTV. Yeah, neither Freddie Mercury or any member of Queen or David Bowie appear in the video. It's just, yeah, kind of stitched together uh, public domain stuff, right? Well, it's it's funny. I don't remember any videos from Hot Space. That's the record that that song is on. It's the last song on side two. And yeah. Hot Space is like Queen's disco record. It's it's this their version of uh, Kiss's Dynasty. Okay. Their, their disco record. I think there was a single or a video for the song Body Language. I'm racking my brain without looking to see if there was one. That's the opening song on that tape. No, I no, say tape like, because I had it's that. Like, it's like five songs in actually, really? four songs in. Wow. Yeah, the whole thing with Body Language is I think the video got banned. I think that I think there was some controversy with the video. So uh, at any rate, yeah. I remember driving up to Hampton Beach and I had this song, uh, you know, on a cassette. Because this song was, it was popular for a long time, you know. So I was driving up there and it gets to that point, like, probably about three quarters to the song. And Freddie Mercury hits this freaking high note. And, you know, I I was still a kid and my vocals weren't, you know, hardening up like I am Groot over here. Mm-hmm. So I was able to hit that note. I was like, ah! and I hit it right. And then my friend, my friend Rob, that was in the car with me, goes, "Hold on, hold on, I want to try that." And he rides the cassette, and then he tries it. Ah! 
yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's my memory with that song. I remember looking forward to that track on the record. I don't remember any of the other songs. I'm looking at the track listing now. Right. I remember like some of the names, but I, I couldn't nick other than Under Pressure and Body Language. The rest of it is a blur. I'll have to go back and listen to it again. And lest we forget, worst song ever, Alumni, uh, Vanilla Ice, lifting the, the, the bass line and changing it so much that it's hardly even recognizable <laughs> anymore. For anybody who's ever studied this song for more than like five minutes on the internet knows that it was recorded ad-libbed with David Bowie and Freddie Mercury sending tapes back to one another in different studios and then stitching it together. So oh, it was never wow. written. Yeah, it was just, it was all ad-libbed in oh, wow. in the segments where each of them sings and them, them playing off the other and then it being built in the studio. So it's, it's a really neat piece of music. Yeah, that's either a credit to their genius or their laziness. I know <laughs> I know if you go back and look for interviews with either David Bowie or Freddie Mercury, they'll both tell you that they actually weren't fans of the song. They didn't care yeah. for it. Well, that's why it's the last track on side 2. It's a that's a throwaway track. Right. There's no ne- that's never a single on an album. Right. And it's got the most listens on that album, that's for sure. Oh yeah. By Way more than body certain. language. Yeah, yep. it's, it's got over a billion listens. That's billion with a B, Jeff. I'm sure Brian May and the rest of the surviving members of Queen are like, that was a good song. <laughs> yeah. We should do another one of those. All right, October the 27th, 1966, the animated television special It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, is aired for the first time. That was on CBS. I sort of miss the old days when you had to wait around for TV to show you something special. Right. And as I grew up, one of the, the children's specials that I... I looked forward to every year until I was in my early adult years was the this particular one, The Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, because it was tied to, I like to think of as like the most festive holiday, for at least for me, is uh, Halloween. And I, yep. and I really like, I enjoyed the message and the humor. And You may be surprised by this statement, but I'm a big Halloween fan. Are and, you uh, really? <laughs> I had yeah. no idea, Bill. Uh, you know, I look forward to watching The Great Pumpkin every year. It was on CBS every year until the year 2000, and then it moved over to ABC. And then I think it was in t- either 2019 or 2020, right around there, where Apple had bought the rights to it. It was taken off TV. It wasn't on TV it was, that yeah, year. Yeah, it was only going to stream on Apple TV. I remember that controversy. Right. And then everybody lost their ever-loving minds. And then me, the rational one, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, you've had, I'm like Jack Torrance from The Shining, you've had your whole freaking life to watch it. now, And, and, and I guarantee you, you didn't watch it every year. Now you're going to complain because they're taking it away? Just buy it. It's available on Amazon. Right. Just go get it and yeah. Stop. If you're that into it, if you're that into it, buy it. You would you would have owned it already. Well, it's funny. That's like a peripheral thing that I notice with people who are like super duper focused on Halloween. As we're almost at Halloween, they'll start saying like, oh, "I can't," you know. This is like back in August. Oh, I can't believe it's almost time. There's like 60 more days of falling leaves and pumpkin spice and Halloween movies, horror movies on TV, and blah blah. It's like, man, that that's not true. <laughs> Nobody that's putting Halloween anything on TV. Everybody's streaming their own stuff. Like, you could do that any time of the year. You can have a Halloween monster movie marathon whenever the hell you want because you own all of the material now or you have access to a streaming service to play it. Or easy access to it. Right. It's not like there's three channels. Right. And you're waiting for... Yeah, you're going to sit there and and wait for it. Right. Right. Not like when we were kids and Channel 56 would run like giant monster creature feature for one week starting at 7 o'clock at night. So I got all my Godzilla fixes in for the year. There is... Just on the verge of infinite things you can watch at any given time. And you're going to complain that it's not on CBS? You don't even know what channel CBS is. I don't. (laughs) All right. Moving on. October 28th, 1726. Gulliver's Travels. The book by Jonathan Swift considered the first really long work of satire that has transcended the age in which it was written. Is published by Benjamin Mott in London, and I think has been in print since 1726. I read Gulliver's Travels in a couple of different forms. One, when I was a really little kid. I also yep. saw the Max Fleischer cartoon, which adapts the first two stories of Lilliput and Brobdingnag. I've seen that, but I don't remember enough of it to, to confirm, but I know well, I've seen it. In the first two stories, Gulliver starts off very big. He watches up on Lilliput. All the other people are very small, right? And he sort of protects the king, and then he leaves, and he ends up on Brobdingnag, where he's very small and everybody else is very big. 
and he becomes the plaything of the princess. And then he ends up on the island of the Yahoos and the Hunanims. But that's not in the Fleischer cartoons. That's where the real satire part is. Uh-huh. At any rate, I read it as an adult in college and was surprised by, one, how horrifically unfunny it was because it was written in <laughs> 1726. And the stuff that made people in 1726 go, ha, 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 made me go, I think there's a footnote or something that I need to read that explains what he just said because I don't understand it. The lack of dick jokes in that story is uh, is noticeable, yeah. Well, like, he goes this long way around, like, for example, in his, when he's in Lilliput, right, there's an uprising and people start to burn the palace down. So he, he urinates on the palace to put the fire out, which, yeah, it's, it's a funny pee joke. Except yeah. he explains it in such a florid way. I was like, I don't, I don't get. Somebody had to explain it to me, like huh? I was very, very dumb, and I'm generally not that dumb. So this is obviously going to be the the Jeff is sick and Bill is angry show because I got another freaking angry story about Jonathan Swift. <laughs> yeah. So, so there is this piece by Jonathan Swift called "A Modest Proposal." Yes, uh, it was written, uh, a, you know, about the potato famine in Ireland, where your friend and mine. Jonathan Swift suggests, well, if there isn't enough food to go around, we can always eat babies. Irish babies. Yeah, they taste better anyway. Uh, You know, which is a real bizarre piece of satire. The Dead Kennedys actually used that as a a reference in their song, Kill the Poor. Now, I could not remember the name of the piece, and I couldn't remember who wrote it. I just knew, eat babies. That's all I could remember. So I'm trying to talk about it, and I said to, you know, I was with a group of friends, and I go, what's the name of that guy from Gulliver's Travels? And my friend Rob goes, Gulliver? <laughs> and then, and like, everybody starts <laughs> laughing. And then I'm like, no, not Gulliver. I'm talking about the guy who wrote it. And then it was such a funny joke that he felt the need to repeat it. Like, he couldn't stop laughing, and everybody in the room couldn't stop laughing. And I'm getting, like, bullshit pissed off about it i'm like no no screw your 50 cent joke over here okay i'm trying to think of the guy that wrote the book go of his travels he had a thing with the e the pain the, the, the moment was completely lost and i was just so mad that pot shot of a joke went over better than what the story i was trying to tell was i'm still mad about it <laughs> i have a modest proposal for you let's move on to october 29th all right october the 29th i ate a baby uh, October, <laughs> October the 29th, 1923, a new dance craze starts when the Broadway show Running Wild opens and features a song called The Charleston. I wonder how dance crazes spread in 1923. They must have been captured on film, like a newsreel or something, and must have rolled out more slowly. Well, there was no television in, in 23. Yeah, no TikTok, right? Yeah, definitely no TikTok. So the Charleston, if I'm going to describe it, you kind of kind of bow your legs out a little bit with your opposite hands on your knees and then you bring your knees in and switch out the hands and then continue to do that. It's fairly simple. It's very of its time. If you were to start doing it, people would be like, oh, I know what you're doing. That's that's from the 20s. Sure. It definitely has a, a timeless quality and it got used in 9 million thousand billion cartoons, yep. short subject films like serials and and whatnot to the point where even today i think my kids would recognize it if i showed them a video and said do you know what this dance is and they'd say it's the charleston and they'd say 23 skidoo dad 23 hey i'm actually gonna watch a short video of it while we talk here so that i i always remember this dance as being something that you needed to be very fit to do because it would kill you it was it looks like pilates there's so much moving you know no wonder flappers were super skinny I'm not sure if you're thinking about the Charleston or the jitterbug. The jitterbug seems like it would, that looks like an epileptic seizure in some in some cases. The jitterbug is almost karate fighting. <laughs> but the Charleston is it's an ambitious dance. There's a lot to it. So a bigger conversation to be had here, but let's not drag it out too long, is you know, we're both generation X. I have friends that are generation X that act like they're boomers. I have friends that are millennials that act like they're boomers. I well with the kids these days and this, that, and the other. You know, they'll bitch about TikTok videos and the TikTok dances. And, you know, I work at a haunted house and every year, whatever the little viral thing going around, all the teenagers are doing it. Last year they were barking at me like a dog. This year I can't tell you because we record these things weeks in the future uh, or or weeks ago. Weeks of the past, yes. Yeah, weeks of the past. So who knows what this year's uh, 
audience trend is going to be. But I think it'd be hot if they all started doing the Charleston. Be like, hey, that's a, that's a doozy of a dance you got there, fella. Good heavens. <laughs> all right, let's wrap up the week. October 30th, 1952. Clarence Birdseye, the foundational scientist who figured out how to freeze food and it not go bad, sells his first product, which turned out to be frozen peas. All right, hold on. I got some questions. He figures out how to freeze food. You, you, you put it in a freezer, right? That's what you do? That's what I do. <laughs> well, yeah, there's a little bit more to it than that, especially okay. with vegetables. They have to be blanched, which is dipped into boiling water for just a few seconds, maybe 10 or 20 seconds, uh-huh. and then rapidly cooled and then rapidly frozen. Otherwise, they'll get freezer burn or they won't retain their freshness. So there's a process that is involved in it. Okay. And to package them for, for sale, you have to make sure that they're sterile, that they're safe. And he figured out all the technology to do that. That sounds like a weird, like, random thing to, like, stumble across, too. It's like, what if we boil it for 10 seconds? Maybe that'll work. And apparently it did. So my ex-girlfriend, we were having a conversation. And one of the things that we talked about was, like, our favorite vegetable. And people give me hell because one of my favorite vegetables is celery, which apparently has no flavor to it. Crunchy water, as they say. Her favorite vegetable was peas. All these years later, I can't get... I. How is peas your favorite vegetable? That's not anybody's favorite vegetable. Uh, I guess it's better than cauliflower. Cauliflower is not all that exciting. My least favorite is um, asparagus. The thing with like frozen peas or any frozen vegetables is before Birdseye was able to figure out how to sell them as frozen peas, mm-hmm. 1952 is not all that long ago. Everything was canned, and there were problems with cans, right? Cans require a lot of salt. They cook a lot of the nutrients out of the food when the canning process takes place. Up until the 1930s, maybe even a little later than that, cans had lead as a sealant that could leach into the can and cause lead poisoning. Cans could Uh, be broken and cause botulism. So there's a lot of like issues. Right. My big issue here is the namesake, okay? You said this guy's name is Birdseye, and they're still in business. Bird's eye. Why? Why on earth would you name your frozen peas bird's eye when frozen peas are roughly the size of bird's eyes? <laughs> it's like a big bag of bird's eyes. That's so gross. I don't, I don't know. I, I never really thought of it that way, but I guess it makes sense when you consider that, you know, often I buy the jarred version of Phileas J. Shave Testicles. Uh, <laughs> stewed plums i was like i mean didn't somebody like somebody i'm not i can't possibly be the first person to notice this didn't he have a first name clarence clarence's frozen peas there you go that's so hard or he could have changed his last name to something more appetizing (laughs) all right let's move on to the celebrity birthdays october 24th 1915 comic book Artist and the creator of Batman, Bob Kane. I always liked the early Batman comics where Batman was a lot less concerned about his conduct. So there were a lot of like villains and robbers that he just shot. Yeah, he was a lot more vigilante back then. (laughs) He was a lot more. Sure, it was Alfred would say like, Master Wayne, are you sure you had to machine gun that whole van full of robbers? And Bruce Wayne would say like, Alfred, have you ever been beaten up by eight guys? Because it sucks. (laughs) Alfred, have you ever been beaten up by one guy in a bat costume? No? (laughs) Shut your damn mouth. I saw a a couple of comic panels of what the precursor to Batman was. And as Bob Kane was sort of developing him, he was a lot more colorful. Like, he had like a red cape and he didn't have the bat ears. I can't remember what he called them. He couldn't sell it. Didn't have the mystique that he needed to write into it to make it work. Yeah, it wasn't the darkness of the darkest bat of the darkness night of the dark of the dark. Yes, he, he wasn't the guy that was prowling around the shadows like, put down that bicycle that you just stole from that guy's porch. What? What did I do? And then, you know, batarang to the head. Uh, <laughs> Batman is the rare character who's not super that has managed to survive as DC Comics' most popular property until even today. He's been around for, you know, barreling head first to, you know, about 90 years now, right? And many evolutions to how the character is portrayed. But seriously... All eras of Batman are fairly enjoyable. I agree. They really are. I like the 66 Batman where he was silly. I like the 70s Batman where he was weird and the 80s Batman where he was gritty. One of my favorite comics is Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns. So it's a character that's always been part of that background milieu of things that I've read. All right, moving on. October 25th, 1941. She is woman. Hear her roar. 
Helen Reddy, a rock vocalist from Australia, I had no idea she was from Australia, was born in Melbourne, Victoria. I remember her from such films as Pete's Dragon. Remember Pete's Dragon? Uh, I do. I saw it in the theater, and then my next experience with Pete's Dragon was seeing Real Big Fish uh, probably about 15 years ago do a cover of not the Helen Reddy song, but another song. Ah, okay. What I remember most from that film, aside from Helen Reddy mm-hmm. and the song Passamaquoddy, which she sang, was how- uh, like, She also sang a song called Candle on the Water. Yep, that's right. The song about the That was the song about painting the whitewash onto the lighthouse, was how much post-production sound was noticeable. It was like spaghetti western noticeable in that, in that movie, <laughs> even when I was a kid. So everybody's voice was done after the fact. It was all the actors that played the parts, but it was all clearly recorded afterwards. She had a super good career in the 1970s. She hewed way more towards adult contemporary. Right. The song Delta Dawn that she had, super famous at its time. It was a number one song. I even remember my father singing that song around the house. Yeah, when I hear that one, I I find myself singing along with it too. And it still gets a lot of play on 70 Satellite Radio. So Moving on to the 26th. October the 26th, 1914. American actor Jackie Coogan who most would know and remember as the original Uncle Fester on the Adams Family television show. Yeah, that's right. He was also uh, the kid in that Charlie Chaplin movie from like 1923. The kid. Uh, the, the, uh, 1921, actually. Yep. 1921. Yeah. He was. He actually was one of the highest paid actors of his time. Yes. Which and- is funny because, you know, Uncle Fester is the second banana in the show. And he, he just sat around out earning the hell out of everybody. <laughs> I'll always remember him lighting a light bulb with his tongue. So when he turned 21, he had found out that his mother and his stepfather had spent almost all of the money that he'd received, you know, because, you know, he wasn't in charge of it. Uh, they bought all sorts of expensive clothes and jewelry and cars, and he ended up suing them. But he, when it was all said and done, he only got like $126,000. Yeah, it was his case that set up the first set of laws that protected kids who were involved in theater and film. Yep. From that kind of exploitation, it was his. Right. It was his experience. Yeah, yeah. You know what that law was called? Uh, Jackie Coogan's law. Yeah, it's Coogan's law. Yep. So, yay! You don't want right. to let that stuff fester. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you <laughs> suck. <laughs> Moving on to the twenty seventh, October twenty seventh, nineteen thirty nine. English comedian and actor John Cleese, who most people will remember from Monty Python's Flying Circus. <laughs> Probably best known from A Fish Called Wanda. Probably best known for a movie called Clockwise that nobody but me remembers. (laughs) But uh, was a founding member of Monty Python's Flying Circus. He was also a founding member of the comedy troupe that came before Monty Python's Flying Circus, where he worked with Graham Chapman and started his career as a comedy writer. And now he's sort of an old curmudgeon, but still gets a lot of interviews and now and then shows up to talk about the state of comedy compared to what it was like when he was writing in the 1960s and 1970s. And comedy is a, you know, it's a stew. It's constantly moving, constantly evolving. You can't just keep telling the same jokes and same style of jokes for all eternity. Right. There was a woman that came to my booth at the fair this year. Every chance she got, she kept on saying, that's what she said. It's like, all right, lady. All right, I get it. You watch The Office. It's funny. Uh, yeah, yeah. Did you do as with uh, not? <laughs> All right. Would you say John Cleese is your favorite from The Flying Circus? He's probably the one that's the most memorable to me because of his super dry delivery. Right. But I don't know if I have a favorite. Yeah, I. That's the thing. Like, I know there was like six members. But it's always a toss-up between him and Eric Idle. The second I say, oh, Eric Idle's my favorite, I'm like, oh, John Cleese. And then if I try to land on John Cleese, then I start thinking Eric Idle again. Uh, I really, really, really like John Cleese's delivery. It's amazing. If you like him in Python sketches, the, the probably the best thing that he was ever in is Faulty Towers. It's still the best-paced, funniest sitcom of all time. And it holds up tremendously well. What was the Americanized version of that called? Amanda's. Starring... What the hell's her name? Amanda? There, now I did it! Ha ha! Uh, uh, what's Sorry. her name? Uh, B. Arthur. B. Arthur? Yeah, B. Arthur. Yeah. yeah, I did the John? joke, Jeff. Well, I did I the joke and it, was, it, it wasn't funny that. when I did it either. Yeah. No. Well, let's all give a good, strong cackle, though, so we can make me feel bad. <laughs> 
<laughs> Amanda. All right. All right. Moving on to October the 28th, 1965. American actress Jamie Gertz, probably best known for. Oh, she's Jamie Gertz, right? She was a big deal. She was a big deal in the 80s. Um, well, I remember her because she was in Less Than Zero with Robert Downey Jr. and Andrew McCarthy. She was Ralph Macchio's love interest in Crossroads. Yeah, she was in a bunch of stuff, but she kind of like fell off the radar and you don't really hear much about her anymore. She did a, she did a bunch of TV, but it was all small things. She was in like one episode of Seinfeld and a few episodes of, I think, How I Met Your Mother, but not, not anything that had any real longevity after the 1980s. I think what actually hurts me... Uh, with Jamie Gertz, uh, like knowing like who she is, is I always get her confused with another actress who also dropped off the radar, Carrie Green. Carrie Green from The Goonies, and she was also in that movie Lucas. That you could just switch her out with Jamie Gertz, and I don't, I you, I wouldn't know this is the difference. Another thing with Jamie Gertz too is if you read the book American Psycho, Patrick Bateman is obsessed with Jamie Gertz. I'm surprised she didn't end up with a part in that film. Now that I think about it, yeah. That it's not like sense. she had a lot right. going on when that film, right. when that film was made. <laughs> Are you busy? Yeah. We got a part for you. That takes us to uh, to October 29th as we stay with our, our stable of uh, actors who were really famous in the 80s and then sort of faded away for a while. 80s yep. and 90s and then faded away for a while and then have sort of come back. October 29th, 1971, Winona Ryder from Heathers and Edward Scissorhands and Beetlejuice, a ton of other right. stuff. Yeah. More recently, the comeback kid in Stranger Things. She hadn't done anything for... A long time. A long yeah. time before she was cast in Stranger Things. And I remember watching the first season of Stranger Things, and I think it took me to, like, episode three. And I was like... Before you that, realized it was Winona Ryder? Is that Winona Ryder? Yeah. Because I, I don't pay attention to, like, titles or letters or words or anything yeah, yeah. like that. Yeah. She's fantastic in Stranger Things. She plays a really good part, especially in those first couple of seasons as the worried mom and stuff. Yeah. I figured it out when she was stringing up the Christmas lights. Yep. And I was like, oh, I know who that is. And <laughs> If you were to create an AI that says, show me what a girl from the early 90s looks like, it would just show you Winona Ryder. Yeah. She was uh, the embodiment of the early 90s. I Seriously, most of the people like in our age group and all that, everybody had a crush on her. No, I agree. She was like the alternative it girl too. Yeah. She didn't take super duper challenging parts, but she took outsider stuff like Heather's was that an outsider movie. Yeah, the stuff that she did with Tim Burton wasn't because Tim Burton wasn't an outsider director at that point. But Heather's was a strange film for the yep. time, and yeah. Anyway, she's a really good actress. I really enjoyed her. The last thing that I remember watching and thinking you're too good for this movie was Reality Bites, which was capitalizing on the image that she already had by the time that movie came out, and it was just yeah. Not- that movie was capitalizing on the image of the '90s. The whole. Everything sucks, kind of a tally. Matter of fact, I I watched a, uh, a a series that was set in the '90s that was called Everything Sucks. I was like, "Yep, that sums it up. That sums it up was, that decade." It was definitely the OK Soda of movies. <laughs> and wrapping up the birthdays on October the 30th, 1963, American comedic actor <laughs> Rob Schneider, constant bit player in Adam Sandler's movies and former yep. Saturday Night Live writer and actor. I like Rob Schneider fine. His whole, like, who he is, how he acts, and all that. He was never destined to be a superstar, and that's fine. He's perfectly fine as a, you know, as a second band. that's just worked out. Yeah, worked out fine, right? It worked out fine. Um, he lived up they to tried. his potential. So, yeah, they tried pushing him forward. They tried putting him in that Deuce Bigelow male gigolo, and he was in a few other, like, headlining movies. And yeah, the animal. yeah. It's just not meant to be, Rob. It's just not there. But you know something funny is I remember the first time I ever saw Rob Schneider. He was on a commercial for, I don't know if it was like 7-Eleven or something. It was some sort of promotion. And you had to get a cup. And you had to hold on to the cup. And it was like a refillable thing. And he had zero. Count them. One, two, three. Zero funny lines in the commercial. But I could tell by his delivery that he was a funny dude. I was like, oh, this guy's really funny. And my friend's like, what are you talking about? He didn't say anything funny. I was like, no, he's funny, though. I could tell by his delivery. And, you know, later on, my friend was right and I wasn't. (laughs) 
I, I was sort of I liked his character in in Judge Dredd. He was the best part, believe it or not, of that movie. So that uh, you get what you pay for with that movie with the, the Sylvester Stallone version of Judge Dredd. Yeah, he's always, like the uh, yeah he's the comic relief in that movie. Right? Yeah, he's the, well. There's not much in that film to be relieved from. That's I think that's why he's he's successful in it. Much like Adam Sandler, Rob Snyder's at his best whenever he's just being funny and try to, instead of trying to be funny. Didn't they make a Deuce Gigolo part two? They made a Deuce Bigelow part two. They did. Oh my! I don't God, know that how is... that got financed. It must have been like, you know, somebody in like Ethiopia was like, "I have more money than I know what to do with." And like the when they made Weekend at Bernie's two, it was a tax write off for the Italian government. So it must have been some program <laughs> like that that made it. Yeah, that is the cinematic equivalent to the worst song ever. All right, young Jeff. What is your pick for the worst song ever this week? Bill, I'm dragging us all the way back to the early 1980s when MTV was new and fresh and the visual appeal of a band was almost as important, if not more important sometimes, than the music that came out of the mouths and or the talent and instrument playing of those band members. Are we doing Under Pressure from Queen? And David <laughs> we Bowie? are not. This okay. uh, Under Pressure from Queen, even if it was played backwards and incorrectly on the wrong speed as a record or if the tape was stretched, would still not be anywhere near as bad as what we're talking about today. Today, we are talking about an English band known to the world as the Thompson Twins that MTV tried for two years to make a thing. They tried to make Thompson Twins a worldwide sensation, and Thompson Twins just suck. I'm going to put that out there like early. Like I, I don't, I've never liked the sound of their music mm-hmm. or the way that it was recorded, but we're not critiquing their entire catalog because no man or woman, or pick your pronoun, can go through their entire catalog and survive. <laughs> so, All I, right, what's, I, what I, song in particular are we taking apart here? As I was looking for the worst song ever this week, you know, first I went to the usual suspects, Hold Me Now, a song that I hear usually when I'm in the public bathroom at the grocery store with severe stomach cramps, or Dr. Doctor, which I hear when I'm at the doctor because I have severe stomach cramps at the grocery store. And both of those songs are awful, but they're not as awful as a song that didn't chart here, but charted in England called You Take Me Up. has a very kind of like you know whistle while you work kind of like uh work day song that i guess were popular at some point in time um, uh, it's it's gonna play the vibraphone and bongos and bang a tambourine <laughs> while you work song it, but it sounds very much like uh doctor doctor and hold me now or hold me now doctor or whatever the name of those yes. songs are it's got the same structure for sure so the Thompson Twins, uh, uh, once again, be- my favorite part about doing this show is I get to learn all sorts of things about all sorts of topics, some of which I would not care for. The Thompson Twins is one of those bands that I don't think anybody in the history of history ever said, you know who my favorite band is? The Thompson, the Thompson Twins. Twins. Yeah. They're, uh, how do you say that? An also-ran? Definitely an also-ran, yeah. And, yeah. you know, it's if you think about, like, who their contemporaries were when they were on MTV a lot, it was Thompson Twins, Duran Duran, managed to have a really long career and a lot of really good records. Culture Club, right. sort of the same. Yeah, They had, I think, three really good records in a row. Soft Cell. Yeah, all of Soft those. Soft Cell, like, right? Early, all those, yeah. Like, all those early synth, synth poppy bands. The right. difference, I think, between Thompson Twins and all of those other bands, aside from the fact that those other bands are good... Is that Thompson Twins is like weirdly like more of an art collective. So they sort of eschewed guitars and bass and structure and instead focused on like bongos and vibraphones and some synthesizers and electric drums and bongos. I think I said bongos twice and tambourines so that the music always sounded like weirdly unfinished. Uh huh. That's the thing too. Like, I was like looking up who's in the band and, you know, what they played and stuff like that because I just remember the videos 
and the lead singer Tom Bailey, he was he's the mainstay. He was in the band from the very beginning through every lineup change and all that because because they started out as more of a like new wave slash almost punk band and Tom Bailey played guitar. Members would come and go in and out and all that and they at one time had like seven members in the band. The increasingly inaccurate Thompson Twins name, <laughs> you know, they went, you know, yes. like I said up to like seven people. And then they did this one song. And by that time, Alana Curie, uh, who you will know as the blonde one. Yes. The one uh, dressed had, in rags with a big hat. Yes. Uh, she had joined the band. And Joe Leeway had also joined the band at that point. And watch how delicately I put this. And Joe Leeway was the one in the band that looks like he could definitely not be a twin uh, for the other members. The three of them uh, at one point had this like covert plan that they were going to start a side project because they recorded this one song that they like really liked. So they were going to like start this side project and like dump all the other guys. Well, the other guys are going to be in Thompson Twins, uh, but they were going to start the side project and work on like that style of music. But unfortunately, that song didn't chart. So they just kind of like gave up that idea. And then the record company came up with the very same idea. They said, we're going to throw everybody else in the band except for you three out. And we'll do it like this. Give everybody a check for 500 bucks. Tell them they can keep their instruments. And they have to sign a piece of paper that says they will no longer ever perform as a band called the Thompson Twins. Because the Thompson Twins is officially disbanding of these four yeah, people. Yeah, they told the, the record company and the three people said, yeah, uh, we're, uh, we're breaking up the band. And then they like went overseas, not necessarily to America, but when they went to a couple of other different countries, just started recording and chopping the music around. You know, maybe two, three years later, the former members of the Thompson Twins are watching MTV and going, son of a bitch! Uh, as, hold, <laughs> as Hold Me Now is in like a real, you know, big rotation. Yeah. It's funny, you know, like, like I was saying before, thinking about the bands that were popular at the time, there was a lot of variety as sort of that British new wave is starting to find its feet. Yeah. And just in the conversation that we had, I know I mentioned Ice House, which I, I don't even think they had a chart hit in the United States. They had a video at the beginning of MTV simply because MTV didn't have stuff to show. Right, they didn't have enough videos. They happened to have one. Yeah. Right. But like Madonna was able to grow and change. Cindy Lauper grow and change. Adamant even kind of. No, he totally did. He Well, I mean, b between when... the Ants records and his solo records, yeah, there's definitely a difference there, but his popularity didn't. It didn't grow the same way like Madonna's did or... Oh, no, no, no. You know what I mean? Or that Duran Duran had the longevity to be able to put out a new studio record 10 years after they last put out a record and it still sell gold. No, no. Adamant's trajectory went down at 45 degrees. Yeah. Yes. There's a place in the timeline for the Thompson Twins. I just wish that there wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Their records always sound like they're mixed to be heard to the point where they're intrusively clear and loud so even if you're not trying to like pay attention to the music you don't have a choice i don't know if that makes sense but that's what it feels like when they're on like oh, i can't make this go away i can't turn it down enough so that i can't hear it my last two thoughts on the thompson twins one whenever you said you were going to bring up this song i was like i don't remember this song like at all but we're doing a segment on the thompson twins i'm going to spend you know a half an hour listening to the thompson twins and I'll tell you, I listened to about five songs. I recognize Dr. Doctor and I recognize Hold Me Now because I know them. But seriously, the other four songs that I listened to were indistinguishable from each other and indistinguishable from Dr. Doctor and Hold Me Now. Yeah, they definitely had a sound and they could never yeah. get away from it. So that other guy there, Joe Leeway, uh, it's got him listed down here as congas and percussion. Listen. Anytime I saw a band and they had a, a bongo player, I'm like, okay, this guy has no other job. It's going to be somebody's friend. There is no reason. Listen to me. I'm going on record. There is no reason for a band to have a bongo player. There's none. The only job that is that, that guy could have in another band is if yep. he was in a ska band, he would be the dancey guy. Yeah. That would be it. He'd be the dancey guy in the ska band. Anytime I went to go see bands and I see somebody rolling in with bongos, I'm like, oh, here we fucking go. <laughs> And last but not least, I actually don't have a like a strong hatred for the Thompson Twins that you seem to have, but because uh, I find them inoffensive, I to me their their songs, especially "Hold Me Now," it belongs in a movie. It's a soundtrack song. It should be in something with Jamie Gertz. <laughs> yes. 
Right. It's in some sort of like love montage where the guy's over there coming up with this completely ridiculous and convoluted plan to win the girl. And you just hear, you say that I love you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So far away. All that. So that's where the song belongs. I don't find the Thompson Twins grading. They don't push the needle at all for me. That's my that's my take. I find them supremely grading and very boring. Boring's a good word. Know what else I find them? Short. <laughs> oh. Oh, I thought we were getting away from this. No idea how t- how tall any of them are. But I do know that one president in particular was head and shoulders shorter than everybody, every other president ever. Uh, hmm. Going back to our very popular and always well-received trivia question, Jeff, who was the shortest president of the United States uh, as of this zero. recording? As of this recording, boy, my knowledge of American presidents is limited. Uh, well, since I live in New Hampshire, I'm going to go with possibly the worst president in American history, Franklin Pierce, New Hampshire's favorite son. Ooh. He can't be too tall. His statue's pretty small. That was a pretty good guess. Our good friend Franklin Pierce was five foot ten, uh, which in the in the large way taller than me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the big scale, he's actually you know kind of in the middle, kind of in the middle okay. for uh, for presidents. We do like uh, tall presidents, like we like yeah, our basketball players tall. Exactly. They they say whenever they do the debates, it's usually the taller candidate that wins. That makes a ton of sense. You know why? Because they always start those debates off with the tip off. And whoever <laughs> wins the tip-off tends to make the layup, so it doesn't surprise me. For record-keeping purposes, uh, your friend of mine, Donald Trump, is actually the third tallest president, if nothing else. Uh, but the shortest president of all time, coming in at five foot four, he's still taller than me. <laughs> uh, five foot four, the fourth president of the United States, James oh. Madison. Muggsy Bowles. No, <laughs> James Madison. All right. James well, Madison they... was the shortest president. All right, that's going to wrap up the show for this week. Hopefully, Jeff will feel better. But you check back in in seven days, see if Jeff feels better. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you. Uh, thanks, everybody. All right, bye, guys. Good night, oh, everybody. Sorry, wait, uh, say good night, uh, Jeff. Good night, Jeff. Bye, bye guys. everybody. A special shout out to James Coster for our theme music. Thank you for listening to Twibbly, but this week was way better last year. You know, you can find us or message us over at Facebook or Instagram. Just look for Twibbly. That's T W W W B L Y. What's that, girl? You should subscribe to Twibbly and tell your friends. Oh, wait. Never mind. It's just that Timmy kid stuck in the old mineshaft again. Don't be like Timmy. Subscribe to Twibbly, and your dog can listen, too.